recording. And I'm going to kick off the broadcast right now. The broadcast is now starting. All attendees are in listen only mode. Good evening. Good morning, good afternoon, depending on which time zone you're in. This is Frank Pixel with the V Brownback, and today I have Björn Brundert and Michael Gash giving us an introduction to containers and container cluster management. And as usual, just a bit of heads up before we start. Um, you, if you have any questions throughout the presentation, you can either tweet the vbrownback um, Twitter handle, use the hashtag vbrownback, um, or simply use the built-in chat in GoToMeeting here. And with that, I'll give it over to Bjorn and to Michael to give a short introduction to themselves and to actually kick off the content. Björn, you go first. Okay, hi. Hi, everybody. So my name is Björn. I'm um, a principal TAM, so technical account manager at VMware. Um, I have been working with VMware for over seven years now, working with various um, large customers on their journey to SDDC and um, hybrid cloud with a special focus on cloud-native applications, DevOps, and um, all things around that. Cool. Um, my name is Michael Gash. I'm a platform architect at VMware, uh, working in the Global Customer Success Organization, and my focus is mainly around Kubernetes on vSphere. Perfect. Thank you, guys. And yeah, I can see the slides, so feel free to take it away. Let's see if the joint clicking actually works. So I'm taking. Yeah, it works. Awesome. Um, At least I thought it works. I can't, oh, okay, um, sorry for that, but it's a little distributed system here. Distributed systems are hard. Um, just briefly on a uh, quick disclaimer, right? So we might cover topics in this presentation that have not been um, shared publicly, even though we don't expect that to happen. So. Um, Please make sure to read the disclaimer if you're on the recording and in the session. But actually, we want to um, start right with the agenda, right? So we'll briefly cover how we got here, because that's a very important topic to uh, to cover when you talk about containers and the motivation for cloud-native applications and um, container orchestration. So why is it actually happening? Um, because just from a technical perspective, um, it's, it's one of the many um, iterations in IT. And you always should ask yourself, why you're actually doing this. Um, then we jump into what is a container, then go into the orchestration um, piece of it and also meet Kubernetes for the first time. Uh, we'll talk about VMware strategy and solutions very quickly. Um, one specific topic that's um, of high importance to, to Michael and myself is the role of the platform engineer. Um, that's something we're going to introduce. And last but not least, give a quick preview to um, the second part of the um, brown bag, which will happen next week, and that will focus on deep dive on Kubernetes. So, 
um, how we got there. So I hope most of you have seen the keynotes from VMworld and um, actually I want to start with a little step back from, from the technology topics and talk about digital transformation overall, right? So Elastic Sky Pizza, the virtual company that was introduced at VMworld um, in, in Las Vegas, is actually a, a, a pizza company, a pizza delivery company that is perhaps the biggest name in pizza delivery over the past decade. Um, but it's facing massive uh, competitive uh, uh, gains from, from their major competitor, Shredder Pizza, which is now using robots to actually build pizza, right, or, or, or create the pizza. So uh, they had a data breach, millions of credit card numbers were exposed, and there is sort of a broken culture in core technology topics. So the IT operations and developer departments are basically out of sync. So they're no longer sharing the same principles and um, making life very easy. So they, um, in this virtual company, there was a project called Leonardo that, that was uh, initiated to stabilize and expand the environments, uh, to, to manage the applications across multiple clouds, find um, the right resources for the right applications, and then focus on, on actually bringing Project Leonardo to life, um, and then optimize it um, over the operational period afterwards, as well as um, discuss additional ideas how to leverage IT inside the company. And this overall is a very important topic if you look at the um, if you look at the IT transformation, digital transformation overall, right? I, I guess everybody that works in IT is is in a company that is somehow struggling um, uh, to keep up with the daily operations, but also to innovate, right? And the role of IT is changing to enable that kind of innovation. So Elastic Sky Pizza is a great example. If you read the Phoenix project, for example, you remember um, Parts Unlimited, the company from that, it's very similar. And I think everybody has their own story to tell. And remember, this is very important because in the end we're doing IT for a bigger, for a bigger reason, right? For a business that's actually relying on this IT. So we're not doing it just for the fun of it. Um, you should always ask yourself why you're doing certain things and why you're making certain technology decisions, and does that actually help the company, right? So with that, let's jump into a, a quick example, right? So um, not a long time ago, it was actually this way that users were just saying, I want apps, and your developers were just requesting access to virtual machines to do some coding, right? So nothing special. This is how, how we got there, um, uh, where we are right now over the past couple of years, right? But life is changing, right? So the demand of the users is still apps, 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 but they want more apps. They want new features, um, and the the whole business-to-consumer relation is changing quite a bit, right? So um, every user and every customer and every company, even a pizza company, um, expects the business that it's dealing with to be a lot more flexible, to work on a lot more um, uh, consumer-oriented activities, right? So the developer is no longer just asking for access to virtual machines because the demand to the developers is increasing massively. So what they want are APIs, they want DevOps, they want containers, but they don't really want to control the infrastructure anymore, right? So they look for alternatives to virtual machines, to just naked virtual machines to get their job done, right? So what they look for is stuff like um, uh, native services on, on leading public clouds, for example, or leverage technologies like containers or um, uh, any other stuff that actually helps them get their job done, right? So if you look at it from a, um, uh, just from a relationship perspective, so as I mentioned, 
the business is actually working with the application developers and the application developers are interfacing with the infrastructure, right? So um, what we call digital transformation is mainly happening in business and applications, right? So business will dictate uh, changes to the applications and um, transform them to make them more, more user-centric, agile, um, integrated in a better uh, marketplace or with partners. And on the other hand, we have a lot of focus on DevOps, which is mainly how do applications and infrastructure people work together and um, get their stuff done. And the question is, who is able to get um, uh, through the cycle of building new apps um, or new features into existing apps? Um, who is able to deploy them as fast as possible, monitor them, use the feedback that is provided by the business or the users back into the applications? And who can go through that circle the fastest, right? So who, who wins that? wins typically the business, right? So it's it's no longer um, uh, the, the big eating the small, but it's the fast eating the slow, right? So that's the, the overall theme that we're operating in here. And this is a this is an important thing, right? Take a few minutes to focus um, yourself. What's the challenge? What's your company doing in that regard, right? So you might just uh, shake it off and say, yeah, yeah, that's not affecting me, right? I'm purely technology, but most of the time, there is actually some kind of business relying on this stuff. So ask yourself, what is this and how can you support that, right? If you take that away from today, that's all we could achieve, right? Um, but looking at uh, how, how are these new applications, so these, uh, these more user-centric oriented um, uh, applications, how are they built? They are typically cloud-native applications. And what, is, what does cloud-native actually um, imply? So, Typically, they're built for change, right? So with a, with a very high frequency, you want to change them as often as possible, and you want to change them with uh, very low risks on your um, on your production systems. And um, yeah, so that, that's one of the key things. Um, the second is they typically run on a cloud platform, right? Because they need um, elasticity. Uh, they need to work on um, uh, at scale, right? So. And reliability is, is something that needs to be put into the application because they need to, to work even though the underlying infrastructure has issues or, or can fall apart because the expectation from the user is actually zero downtime, right? So you don't want to have um, uh, yeah, maintenance windows and the application is not available over the weekend because we're doing some maintenance on the application that's unacceptable by, by most of the users or businesses. And, if you're interested in how these application architectures should look like or could look like in the future, make sure to use um, uh, some of the guidance and ideas from, for example, the 12-factor applications. Um, so there is a website just focused on that, um, but also there is, I mean, the, the principles also include things like focus on APIs, stable APIs, focus on um, CACD automation, etc. So how does that application look like after all, right? I think everybody's aware of the, um, the monolithic approach and you can, um, we can discuss for hours about monolithic and, and um, microservices oriented architecture, but um, let's assume this is a mon monolithic application with um, typically a front end, several workers and, and some um, database in the background and the microservices approach is a little different, right? That's loosely coupled services that have stable interfaces between each other to actually um, provide services to the users. And if um, we continue a little here, and whoever has been around for, for more than a decade probably remembers a topic called um, 
service-oriented architecture, SOA, right? And microservices very much remind you of this, this, uh, these SOA principles. So it's like SOA reloaded. Basically, the focus is on faster release cycles, right? And um, scaling and availability, but also team independence, right? So getting um, stuff done, decoupling um, uh, larger blocks from each other to, so they can actually work independently. Um, but this requires a better understanding of distributed systems architecture, right? You cannot just take two pieces of an application and distribute them to the Americas and, and uh, Europe, for example, because you need to understand the impact of latency, for example, but also the impact of um, uh, decreasing availability, for example, in, in certain areas. So the idea is um, uh, to, to leverage these uh, ideas from, from the service-oriented service architecture as well. And if you look at how things are changing or how applications are um, handled today, so you typically have the existing applications on the left-hand side, so you can either just maintain them um, and keep them as is, but most of the applications are still somehow in, in uh, the works, right? So what we see typically and what we want to focus on here in this, in this specific presentation is replatforming and refactoring and replatforming is really just keep the application as is but move it into a different environment um, while refactoring is actually modifying the application um, for a new environment right so this is the difference um, between these two that you typically see and of course you can get all, go all the way um, uh, to the right and actually rewrite application on and develop them um, for the cloud in the cloud for example but this typically requires a lot more um, effort to be put into a, the application, which is um, also typically taking a lot more time, right? If you look at the, um, the waves, as I said, the first wave is typically something like repackaging. Um, so words like V2C, so VM to container, will come up more and more often. You might see that in Teams already, that instead of shipping an RPM file um, from the, the output of application development, they might actually produce a container or, a, or actually an image, right? So to, the, to instantiate that on a um, container host. And the other topic is more the whole second wave is like rewriting. So um, decompose the monolithic applications, uh, differentiate between stateful um, and, and stateless services and actually uh, migrate that off, right? But if you look at the, um, just some, some images here, so, the repackaging might be very easy, right? But you also need to, to worry about, does that actually work? Does that work at scale? So the complexity to migrate is fairly moderate, but the complexity to migrate to the second wave and actually rewrite the application is, is a pretty high complexity. So um, how, does actually, how do you actually deal with that? Um, and how do you support that? So this is where we actually introduce containers, right? So moving on to containers, and a little container history, and I don't want to bore you with um, technology that's uh, been introduced in the 19, 1970s, 1980s, um, but just to give you an idea, right, so um, containers have been around for quite some time. It's not a new technology. Uh, we had it implemented on various levels, and if you look at something like, for example, VMware ThinApp in um, 2008, that's some kind of a, a container technology as well, right? So. And um, we could add a lot more bubbles uh, for today because the container landscape is changing like never before. But just to give you an idea, this has been this technology has been around for quite some time. And probably just to highlight the um, 
the real basics. So typically you have an infrastructure, right? So you have your um, operating system, um, the host operating system, and then you have um, the Docker engine that actually runs the container, right? So just a word on Docker. Docker is um, uh, on the one hand side, a very famous um, open source project, project, right? So this is the, um, uh, the core technology that's also embedded in Docker, the company. Um, but just to make you aware, right, there is an open source project and there is a company. Um, there have been a lot of name changing in the past, right? There is um, Mobi and um, um, all kinds of kits that have become available. Just, just to give you an idea, right, um, containers run inside an operating system um, typically and they provide a, a process in an operating system which is isolated on the operating system level and it abstracts the application from the underlying operating system. Right, so the benefits for containers um, can be broken down into various areas. So the first is, of course, the build process, and we'll see um, uh, how this actually looks in a minute. Um, so the developer can actually build the application and puts all the dependencies into an artifact or, or an image, right? And that image can be put on a registry, and that registry helps it um, or, to, to actually ship the application, for example, from the local development uh, workstation to a production server where it's supposed to run afterwards, right? So the, um, uh, and this is actually one of the key benefits, right? It's like um, a zip file that can be, that can be executed, right? It's, it's um, the whole, uh, a colleague once called it uh, an MSI file without um, the hell of DLLs. So yeah, you can actually just build it and it will run anywhere where you find actually the, the container engine um, uh, to run it, right? So we have the build, the ship, the run, and then this results in, in um, increased velocity, right? So you can speed up the whole process instead of focusing on, on all kinds of dependency management and um, um, orchestration and making sure that the underlying operating system is the same. This doesn't matter that much after all because all you need is a runtime um, where you can execute the, or instantiate your container images into containers. So how does that play together with VMs? So where do VMs and, and containers live in the stack, right? So if you look at, at the um, abstraction here on the left-hand side, we have physical infrastructure and operating system and applications. What virtualization did is, re is really to abstract the hardware uh, for virtual machines, right? So we're decoupling the operating system from the underlying infrastructure and Probably everybody on this call is aware of that. So um, what do containers do, right? Containers introduce the um, uh, operating system abstraction with small pieces of the operating system living inside the container, but the rest is being decoupled um, from the underlying operating system, right? And logically, you would run that um, just to make the, the, the runtime um, as easy as possible to also put that in a virtual machine and actually use the existing hardware abstraction because hardware management at scale is actually pretty complicated. So um, make sure to leverage what you built before because it's just a, just a different um, thing inside the, the operating system that we're working on. So looking at traditional applications inside VMs, right? So we do have a, a Linux kernel, for example, example, a standard Linux host. You have your common Linux kernel. You have your management and user space tools, right? So all kinds of libraries and um, uh, management softwares, 
um, and then on top you you on top of that that bundle you actually create your templates um, your VM templates your Linux templates for example and then you put your application software in it and um, configuration by using configuration management tools or kinds of distributions um, uh, and and you update and actually manage your packages install your middleware etc right and then it instantiates the actual application processes and runs them for you right the, the challenge with that is it's typically a very long-lived operating system so you need to worry about all these topics that I just mentioned right so the patching the image updates but also the configuration drift which is um, another key issue right but that also uh, creates quite a configuration management overhead if you look at you just want to run a certain application process right so you don't actually need the underlying operating system it's a it's it's just a helper to actually get the job done but in essence you don't um, you don't want to run the operating system for operating system um, uh, purpose you want to run the operating system for the application and all you need is actually the application and this is where um, uh, a docker becomes or containers actually become very interesting right because if you look at the um, at, at a container host right running the docker engine so there is a Linux there's a um, it's photon OS it's a very small um, uh, Linux system just for illustration purposes you could any have any other um, system here so all you need to do here is actually do docker run container image and what happens is you actually instantiate um, uh, an, an application from that image into um, a running container right and how does the how does the container look so we do have um, a docker file and that docker file actually includes everything that you need to have um, uh, just double clicking on that everything that you need to have to describe the application right so what's the foundation the um, uh, for the actual container right so in this case it's it's ubuntu um, but then going into um, what is actually being executed so this is apache right so this is um, uh, the topic that's that's being focused on here and um, that's all that's being instantiated based on the docker file and um, so the container will run on that um, container host in um, yeah the way you describe it right and if you have a um, uh, if you have a second container for example instantiating wordpress based on on a Reddit system for example that's also possible described in the docker file right so um, you might wonder where does this actually live right so how does the um, uh, container image get deployed to the um, container engine or the, the, um, the docker host right so what happens is when you do the docker run container image it will look for an image cache does that actually exist locally and if not it will go and query um, uh, for example docker hub if you specify that as a docker um, as a registry so it will just look for the container image there and actually grab the image and execute it for you um, and it will run on the on the system um, and you can instantiate that uh, multiple times of course on the other hand you can also have a private registry right so you might want to you might not want to put your business applications um, onto the public docker hub or uh, for for example the the um, uh, bandwidth reasons right so those containers can create quite a quite a bandwidth on the um, on your public facing network you might want to have a private registry um, uh, for security reasons as well and then you can just put that locally and just query a different registry right instead of going to the public one 
You can go, for example, to the local one, in this case, Harbor. It's included in vSphere Integrated Containers, one of the container products that VMware is shipping today. So that's just for your illustration um, how that actually works. I'll hand over to Michael now for a quick demo. Before we go into the demo, I would have a quick question, if you don't mind. Sure. Go ahead. So since containers are supposed to be very short-lived uh, virtual machine, well, not virtual machines, right, um, but applications, um, once you stop the container, basically its contents are gone. Um, so how do you actually persist storage then? If, if you have a database, for example, right, and there is Postgres, MySQL um, containers out there, so how would that work in the backend? Bjorn, shall oh, I take okay. this? Yeah, yeah, yeah go ahead. Know. I think you can just take it and, and probably even talk about it in the demo briefly. Yeah. So th that's actually a good question because, first of all, most of the um, applications being migrated, as Bjorn mentioned in the pre-platform repackage, are usually the stateless, uh, easy ones, um, the user-facing web services. Um, and nowadays we see uh, platforms like Kubernetes and, and Docker also moving into a world where they support stateful or have better support for stateful applications. And this is not an like like an easy easy do be, uh, easy task because containers are meant to be ephemeral, so they should come and go and and start. Especially in a in a cluster, they they could start on one host and be restarted on another host. And um, you also have the kind of story with cluster file systems that you might want to use. In, in those scenarios and th that's a very tricky task to to be solved and addressed and all the uh, container orchestrators that we are going to mention later in the presentation and also in, in, in the kubernetes um, specific area they all have support for stateful applications but it, they differ in the way as they do it and now we see a more more kind of a standard emerging with the container storage interface the csi where the community is going to settle down on the standardization, how to plug in and hook in different uh, storage backends, be it NFS, be it iSCSI, and so on. So long story short, um, stateful applications are still kind of tricky to get right. Most of the platforms have support for them, but um, kind of the, the, the difficult parts are still in the details and have to be worked out. Okay, perfect, thank you. Good. So just a quick demo, uh, and this is like the Docker 101 basic demo maybe most of the people already have seen, but uh, we have still chosen to, to show this just to make, make, make it clear and, and circle back to what Bjorn said in the beginning, um, going fast in the, into this circle and cycle and uh, going up fast. And we have customers saying, saying to us that um, they can spin up virtual machines in two or three minutes and they're up and running. So why, why, why the heck would, would the container be even beneficial in, in this area? So there are different kind of advantages of running containers. Oops, sorry. Let's just quickly uh, jump in here. And the like most important advantage of a container, at least from, from my perspective, is that you give control to, developer, to the developers when it comes to describing the environment the application has to be run 
uh, or be spun, spun up. Usually we had to send over between developers and operators and developers specify I want this PHP version and Apache and things like that and they were running a different one locally on the on the local devices and in production they were running a different version of PHP or Java and then the issues, the trouble um, became apparent uh, because of configuration drift. Now with containers and it's be speaking about uh, Docker in particular, we have this uh, infrastructure as code um, syntax or file or power that we give to the, to the developer where he is going to specify the runtime for his application. And Docker in particular made it very easy to leverage all the functionality that has been in the Linux kernel for a very long time to uh, make containers work, like the isolation and the resource sharing or resource isolation that Bjorn mentioned with cgroups and namespaces. But Docker made it easy to use and put it in a nice tooling that uh, everybody can easily understand and use and then deploy to a registry and from there on consume and so on. So uh, we'll start with a with a Docker file and Bjorn showed one, but this is another one, which is a pretty pretty basic one. It says from scratch. It means that there's no uh, base file system or base image that we're, we're going to build on. Um, usually would, you would see something like Ubuntu or something something like that. This is when you deploy an application that has a dependency onto specific libraries or stuff that has been provided by the environment. Now, since we are going to deploy a Golang application, which is a statically compiled binary, we actually don't really need a, like a base file system because all the dependencies are shipped with the with the binary. So that's, that's why we say from scratch. And this is also pretty uh, pretty nice because it gives us a very slim image. If you would specify from Ubuntu or something like that, you would end up with a 70 or 80 megabyte image because this is going to be pulled down. And Docker, again, made it very easy to use a layered file system um, syntax that you can reuse existing layers like a base layer and then add on top of it a Java JRE layer and then top on, on this deploy your jar file or whatever. So this is the image sharing that Pion mentioned in the, in the registry part. Now second our line three and four is basically just saying add some stuff that's in the local file system we're going to see right now. Add this folder, add this binary, this is just a web server and then expose the port 40,000 uh, to the outside world. Um, this goes into Docker networking, which we don't have time today to explain, but essentially if you run multiple containers uh, of the same application, for example, uh, which happens to use the same port, for example, this application uses port 40,000, you have to make sure that um, on the like exposed side of the Docker of the Docker network interface, you use different ports because otherwise you run into port conflicts. Um, but in this case, we're just is there a question? No, the good thing is, even though we don't have time today, in two weeks' time, Eves is going to take us to the intrinsities of... Oh, right. <laughs> oh, that's a good hint. That's a yeah. very good hint, yes. Eve is going to be like the godfather of networking. That's, that's right. And then we specify the entry point, which is the web server. So this is the Docker file. And based on this Docker file, and the uh, like the source code that we have here, which is which is this application, and which is our folder for some like web uh, data, like an image, I think is in there. 
we can start and build our container image like from uh, from this from this docker file syntax and this is something that we do manually here in the demo but usually you run through a pipeline which is the uh, uh, continuous integration continuous delivery a part that Pion mentioned before so the developer would upload the the source code into a source code repository like github from there jenkins or a build system would see oh there's a new kind of commit that happened into this source code re repository now i'm going to start to build the binary the binary is going to be built and then from this on the docker file is being pulled and the docker image is being built and so this is a fully automated process uh, that's that's happening like on a regular base or perhaps even per check-in Per, per commit uh, from from the development team, and what it ends up doing is it's just basically doing the um, a build and an image in this case. So I created a make file just to make it easy, and now my system is going to build from the source code the binary, and it's building it in Linux because I'm running uh, the Docker environment on Linux. Then Docker the Docker process kicked in, and it built a Docker image which is this name. I don't use a version tag. Usually in production, you use version tags. I just use latest. And in the local cache on my machine, you see a new image. It says it's 35 minutes ago because I, I built it like 35 minutes ago and it just saw that it's the same, so it didn't rebuild it. And the size is six megabytes. So it's pretty slim, it's a web server. And now we can just spin this up. And we specify um, remove this container when it exits, run it interactively so I get this nice output. Do a port mapping for the port 40,000, 40, which is on the container side, and map it to an outside port on my machine on 40,000 as well. Limit it by CPU, so just give it half a CPU of my machine. Just give it 50 megabytes of memory. And I used these. Um, these limit, limits, or oh, I set these limits just to show that with this tooling, uh, Docker made it very easy again to um, leverage the C groups kernel features that have been in the Linux kernel for I think more than more 10 years now, just by specifying some command line flags, which is very easy to use. And on the right hand side here, there's just, just a container monitor. You see that the container is already running. It's got this name, it's got this ID, it's currently doing no CPU and it's being limited by um, 50 megabytes of memory. Now we can go to my local machine, just check the port 40,000 and you see that, that the web server is running. If I stop this thing, the container is gone and the website is, pro uh, well, also gone as well. So just w what we wanted to show, and this is again, the very easy Docker 101, it's very easy to build, to give first of all power to the developer to build the application, including all the dependencies and specifying how this application should be exposed to the outside world, like port mapping. You could also specify volumes to the question that you had, uh, Frank, um, about storage. You could say that this application needs uh, some kind of volumes where it's going to persist um, the, the data inside. And then uh, the container gets stored somewhere. Here I put it just on my local machine, but it could also have uploaded it to a Docker registry. And from then Docker run would pull it or use the cache and execute it. And you can also specify limits. And this isolation is pretty 
powerful. So I could spin up like 10 of these on the same machine, uh, which would, would not interfere with each other. And then also we could limit them by resource usage and control them. Now the question is, I could also do this with, with a virtual machine. So what's the advantage of uh, like spinning this up in two seconds versus two minutes if you're good with spinning up virtual machines? Now imagine that for each application that you spin up, you have to spin up a separate virtual machine because the application is a PHP or Java um, application that used to have some specific libraries or requirements or configuration settings. So for every um, unit of this application you would have to spin up a new virtual machine because otherwise they would interfere with each other or libraries would conflict with containers because they each live in their own namespace or namespaces you could spin up different kind of python java php applications with different libraries on the same machine and since they are isolated on the operating system level uh, you don't have those conflicts from from a library perspective and by this, you can also drive utilization on, on the virtual machine or on the host, because now you can pack more um, processes inside the same operating system, uh, which was not possible before on virtual machines or on, on, on other hosts, because they would uh, directly see each other and interfere with each other. Uh, with each other. So I hope this uh, make, made sense. Bjorn, Frank, any, any comments on this? I mean, it's just a basic demo, but any comments so far? Questions? I keep being I keep being impressed by um, how small you can go with uh, Go the language, right? Or GoLang. Um, so six megabyte web server. Um, oh my goodness! Oh yeah, good good point. Yeah, so you would spin up Apache usually and bring in some other stuff also just to bring up a website like a front end site, and with Go you can statically compile this all into one binary. You don't need Apache because the web server is in the binary and you can you can go pretty pretty small in size. That's right. Also from an attack surface perspective, right? Instead of patching your um, Apaches with yes. all the vulnerabilities, you have a six megabyte thing that's yes. already compiled. It's amazing. Exactly. Anyway. Yeah. Just a kernel, just the operating system and you're good to go. So back to the presentation and uh, Moving on a little bit. So we, we've seen what containers can do. You can go pretty fast. You can give power to the developers. Um, you can isolate them. You can drive uh, utilization, sharing, and, and all this stuff. Now, just one, just running one container or multiple containers on the same host basically is not really that much of, uh, of production readiness or greatness that, that we are used to. Usually, we would run our application uh, replicated in, in, in a cluster. So from this one host with my Docker environment or with my container runtime, we easily end up in production with multiple hosts. And these multiple hosts have to be managed some, somehow. And this is where container orchestrators uh, come in, like uh, Kubernetes, uh, which we are going to cover in this presentation, but also in the next two parts more, more, more deeper. So container orchestration, there's a lot of things orchestrators currently do, and there's there's a kind of big difference between what some of the um, like container orchestrators do, which are more focused on cluster management, then we have more kind of operating system stuff with uh, monitoring and logging. So there's a, there's a huge um, grade between container orchestration when you compare Docker Swarm, Nomad, uh, Kubernetes, Mesos, and, and, and so on. But most of them implement 
some some of the features that we we see here on this page which is of course scheduling so deciding where a container is being put with affinity anti-affinity rules uh, replicating those images that if one host fails the other ones still survive or restarting them doing rolling upgrades with zero down down times uh, finding other services which means that if containers come and go they get different ports they get different ip addresses so how do they find each other so you need a stable name service uh, most of them bring uh, service discovery with them. Storage management, as Frank uh, already asked about, is a big, like, big uh, topic today. Just to get this right, networking, obviously, which is Steve uh, East part in, uh, in this third part of this tutorial, and um, some operational stuff around this. Some of them you already might know like docker swarm which is a docker just for for the clustering which is also easy to use the so docker again made it very very easy to stand up a cluster and run containers uh, in, uh, in a production and replicated environment kubernetes kind of currently leads the leads the path in terms of community contributions and awareness and uh, backed by google being a very um sophisticated product already right from the beginning because Google put in 10 years of experience, of own experiences running uh, own container cluster management and uh, when they, before they uh, open sourced or created Kubernetes and then uh, open sourced it. Marathon is a container orchestrator which uses Apache Mesas. So this is kind of a different style of container orchestration as a two level approach, so to say. We're going to cover on the next part of the series, Nomad from HashiCorp, very slick, very lightweight. Um, not that many features like Kubernetes, but actually a very good tool if you want to go quick and fast with container orchestration, but also VMware vSphere integrated containers, which kind of has a different approach to it, um, to handling containers, but uh, also falls in this uh, category because you spin up containers and vSphere uh, integrated containers are going to manage them at a production and cluster scale. At the end of the day, all of them give you a framework to deploy scalable, robust, and efficient distributed systems. So you write the application owner or developers, they write distributed systems, and they're going to be deployed and run by those container orchestrators. Just a short preview. Again, this is what we're going to cover in the second tutorial, uh, second part, much more deeper. So usually you have these master components, which have their uh, resource scheduling and resource management. Um, you have a meta store, which is usually etcd or console, where the state is persisted in terms of information where each node is running and where each container is being spin up and, and stuff like that. So it's like the backend state for the whole container orchestrator. And then you have the agents, which is which are the workhorses, which run a container runtime. This could be Docker. Kubernetes by default uses Docker. Swarm obviously uses Docker as, a, as an engine. But um, doesn't have to be Docker as a runtime, could be another container runtime. Um, for example, Mises uses uh, its own containerizer. Now, since this is a tutorial on Kubernetes, or every we brown back series on Kubernetes, two more words on Kubernetes itself. Kubernetes was born by Google and um, goes back to the experience of running container cluster management inside Google for more than a decade. And there's a book uh, already in the second revision now, which is called the Data Center as a Computer. And the idea was that most people think about container orchestration just as a cluster that spins up or runs containers. But the idea is more that treat your data center or your cloud resources or the fleet of machines that you have 
just as a giant single computer, like a computer that you have on your desk, but much much bigger and uh, at a global scale. And this means you th you should think more about this as a system, like an operating system that you interact with, that provides you with abstractions like storage management, network management, that you don't have to think about it when you write your application. You just create your application, write your container image, specify um, the way it should be deployed, like five replicas and be exposed to the outside world. And then you put it into this big machine and the big machine will take it take over for you. So this is different from what we usually do, uh, what we or what we have have done in the past, which is kind of an imperative style. You you describe each step that your uh, package goes until production, um, it's a very imperative way. And instead, with these kinds of systems, especially Kubernetes, you just say, "Here's my application. Um, run it five times for me somewhere, replicate it, make it available, make it exposed to the outside world. I don't care how. This is kind of the pivotal mantra." run it in the cloud for me, I don't care how. Kind of similar, It's it's it should be seen as an operating system, and the operating system then will run this for you. Think of yourself, if you have a Windows machine or whatever, if you start a machine, uh, if you start an application, the operating system just won't ask you, where should I run it, on which core of your machine, of this machine should I run it, and how should I isolate it, and which network port should I open up for you? The operating system handles this for you, and the same is true for these kind of cluster managers. So this is what we already said. Kubernetes is an open source system for deployment, scaling, and management of containerized application. But more importantly, again, this, it's, it should be seen as an operating system for the data center or for the cloud, because it's also supported in AWS, um, Google Cloud Engine, or Azure. Um, but also on-premise, like if you have an infrastructure as a servant environment like vSphere, you can deploy Kubernetes uh, on this infrastructure, obviously. So Kubernetes requires infrastructure, so it doesn't replace virtualization. Some people think it replaces like hypervisors. It does not. It requires you to provide an infrastructure as a service layer, and then it settles on top of this and exposes an API, and then you run applications on top of this. Just a short teaser. We'll get back to this in the second part of this tutorial in much more detail. And now I'm going to hand it over to you to the last part of this presentation, VMS strategy and solution. To be on. Sure. So, um... Uh, thanks for that, Michael, and um, everybody that has listened in so far. So I just want to encourage you to to listen in next week. So Michael is uh, one of the major Kubernetes experts inside VMware, and you will always um, learn something new from every presentation. So just um, make sure you tune in next week or get the recording up. So the um, thank you. Oh yeah, sure. Um, you know I'm a fanboy. <laughs> so. <laughs> The next uh, the next piece of the presentation is really just just to give you a, a very uh, much cloud native applications portfolio in a nutshell. Um, so you probably have heard about vSphere integrated containers from um, last year's uh, VMworld, and you have probably tested that out already um, locally. We just shipped a new version, which is vSphere integrated containers 1.2, and in addition to running um, containers as VMs on vSphere. Let that sink in, right? Containers as VMs on vSphere. Um, you can now even run um, native uh, Docker container hosts on vSphere through vSphere integrated containers, right? So we added a second option um, uh, to the product because, as, as Michael said, the, we do have the virtual container hosts inside vSphere integrated containers that have an opinionated way of actually 
making use of vSphere resources, right? So um, it will scale within the boundaries of your vSphere cluster or it will scale within the boundaries of the specified resource pool that you um, uh, provide to the virtual container, so the VCH, right? This is the VMware native um, form of running it. But sometimes you want to leverage some of the features um, uh, inside Docker. You want to have, for example, swarm capabilities. And this can be done with the newly integrated um, Docker container hosts, right? So while we take care of some of the swarm functionality inside um, the, the virtual container hosts and actually run the containers at the vSphere, at vSphere scale, um, the Docker container house will allow you to, to um, natively interact with Docker. So that's a great use case for a developer sandbox, for example. So you need to have full exposure um, of the Docker features um, in the development lifecycle or in, um, in a testing uh, cycle, for example, while re, um, uh, reworking your applications and actually making them, um, uh, making them oh, just put them in a container, for example, or actually uh, building applications from scratch in containers. So this is a great offer to the developer community from the platforms team. Um, and uh, uh, so these are the two capabilities that we ship with vSphere integrated containers today. In addition, as I mentioned before, there is um, Harbor or Project Harbor, which is all open source, by the way, everything that I've mentioned here is now all open source. Um, so Project Harbor is actually the registry. And then we have another um, uh, uh, project which is called Admiral. And this is the um, actual container management um, system, container, uh, a user interface. It actually has um, uh, rights and roles attached to it. So um, it integrates with vCenter. So it allows you to make that leap into the, the future of applications. So um, actually refactoring existing, oh sorry, um, uh, replatforming existing applications into containers. So the whole uh, V2C capabilities is everything that you're looking for. Um, uh, you will find that in vSphere integrated containers, right? So if you haven't checked it out yet, it's a feature of vSphere. It's included in, um, in uh, many vSphere editions already. So I just remember Enterprise Plus. I'm not sure if there's anything else, but this is a it's a, it's a great technology. It leverages everything underneath um, that you have in, in place already, so you don't need to worry about most of the stuff. So especially when it comes to um, a stateful storage, right? You will be able to use everything from a storage technology perspective that you already have attached to your vSphere platform. You don't need to worry about integrating specific hardware into a new bare metal system, for example, just to run your uh, Docker containers, right? So you can reuse that and make use of the whole vSphere platform um, and, and the benefits that you are operating in already today. In addition, we launched something um, called VMware Pivotal Container Service at VMworld in, um, in Las Vegas and also in Barcelona this year. So Pivotal Container Service uh, in a nutshell really allows you to deploy an enterprise uh, Kubernetes distribution um, on top of vSphere, right? So we have, uh, we have seen a lot of demand for that and um, people want to run Kubernetes, but it's not just about setting up or finding an easy way to set up Kubernetes cluster. This is one thing that um, a PKS or Pivot Container Service actually does, um, but it will also allow you to, to make the whole day two operations. So everything from um, scaling your, your Kubernetes infrastructure, adding more workers, for example, adding more masters, um, but also upgrading your clusters and 
the whole re repairing of um, uh, failed um, uh, nodes inside your uh, Kubernetes cluster. This will all be automatically uh, done by a component called Bosch. And Bosch is actually um, uh, the operating tool that is being leveraged for PKS, but it's also being used for a technology um, called Cloud Foundry. So this is like a common um, operating mechanism to make life easier for the um, for the platform engineer that we're going to mention in just a few just a few minutes. Um, so the person that's actually providing all these kind of frameworks on top of the infrastructure and making sure the application developers uh, are getting um, what they need. And you'll understand that in, in a second, right? So this was the, the high level overview um, of the core technologies. I could talk about that uh, for way longer, believe me, um, just for the interest of time and uh, keeping it short and, and uh, crisp here. These are the, the core technologies. We do have um, a couple of other things in, in the portfolio from our um, brothers and sisters at uh, Pivotal. So uh, Pivotal Cloud Foundry, for example, it's another technology. And you can, of course, run any other technology on top of vSphere. But these are the ones that actually come from VMware. So why is it important and why do we want to stress the whole um, role of the platform engineer? Because if you look at the overall cloud native um, uh, uh, landscape for now, and this is a slide taken from the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which is open source, so you can find that at the GitHub URL in the in the, the bottom of this this page. So this is just a rough structure of where the landscape actually is right now. So you do have the the public clouds, um, you do have your infrastructure there, but you also have um, all kinds of provisioning um, uh, software. You have your runtimes, your orchestration and management. You have your application de de definition and development, and then all kinds of integrated platforms and um, other technology on this slide. And, and it, it's just an overview, right? Um, this is what, what's out there and what developers might be using, right? So the projects that are being highlighted here are the projects that are hosted by the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. And the most prominent one is probably um, Kubernetes for now. And um, uh, yeah, so this, is, this has been donated to the to this foundation to continue working on it in a in a joint fashion, right? And um, uh, so VMware is a is a platinum um, member of this foundation. Um, same applies to Pivotal, and there are many others on that um, on that foundation jointly working on on this standard to to make sure that you have a holistic and um, seamless experience for the for the developers, right? So who's going to take care of that, right? So do you let the developers run with that, and then it will magically run somewhere or um, so who's actually taking taking care of that right because just from an um, uh, approach so no too far okay um, so if you look at the the outer layer so the the hardware then you have typically some kind of um, infrastructure as a service component then you have your container orchestrator or you even go into uh, an application platform and so the bigger the bubble at the bottom, um, the higher your flexibility and, and less enforcement of standards you will find, right? But the closer you go to the top, so the application platform, the lower is your development complexity and you will have a lot of operational um, efficiency because it's so standardized, right? But it will also limit some of the capabilities uh, for the developer so you won't have all the freedom, right? But the overall idea should always be to move um, uh, workloads uh, to the top of this, right? Instead of 
building everything on your own or let the application developer focus on so many small areas that don't provide real benefit to the application or to the business, right? Let them focus on what actually creates the difference for the business, right? And this is something um, that I mentioned in the beginning, right? So you, you don't want to build application platforms just for the hell of it, right? You want to build the application um, and the underlying platform to get stuff done for the business, right? That's the, that's the overall idea. And so um, if, if somebody's going to say, like, we're going to run this Kubernetes thing now, um, who is supposed to do that, right? And I would argue, and um, that's why Michael and I are putting this into this, this presentation, is actually um, we think it should be some kind of platform engineer. And that platform engineer is sitting somewhere in between IT operations and um, the developer space, right? So that's the person that helps to, to translate um, uh, the needs of the developers into IT operations terms and IT operations will be able to provide more services into the development community to actually evolve um, uh, that kind of conversation, right? And right now, the hot new thing is, is Kubernetes and last year it was Docker, right? And there will be other technologies following, um, but there needs to be somebody inside the company that actually focuses on helping enable the developers to run that on um, the private cloud, but also on the hybrid cloud or finding the right place to actually run it, to not just um, uh, have it running somewhere, but also making sure that it's, um, it's properly secured, right? You don't have any, any leakage or issues, right? Because if, if you build an application from scratch and you run it somewhere, um, anything can happen, right? And we, we want to have agility and, and use all these new technologies and, and the services that are out there, but at least um, uh, somebody needs to worry about how is it actually run and is it, is it secure enough, right? Okay, so that's... Um, that's the big piece um, for us today. I think we'll just finish up with a quick preview on what to expect next week um, in the in the View Brownback series here. And um, I'll just hand it over back to Michael. And I just want to say thank you already. And um, take it away, Michael. Yeah, just a quick preview on next week. And since I don't have the slide deck done yet, <laughs> um, just feel free to ping me on Twitter or the chat window if you have specific needs or questions that I should be answering next week. But otherwise, I'm going to focus on, uh, again, container scheduling and management. So this stuff that we just very briefly touched today, going more deeper inside uh, Kubernetes and how things are, are working inside Kubernetes, as well as show the zero downtime approach, because this is one of the benefits that obviously developers want and love uh, in these days, and uh, some kind of the fancy auto-scaling system with Kubernetes, self-healing, self-auto-scaling, self-aware applications. All right, this is it for me for this week. Also, thanks again to you for listening. Thanks for Frank for setting this up, this series. And I'm going to hand it back to Frank now. Yeah, thank you guys very much for, for actually presenting. Um, if you have any questions, feel free to pop them into the chat. I think the guys don't have any issues hanging around for a few more minutes to actually answer those questions. Um, that is it. If you wouldn't mind actually opening up a web browser in private window or something like that, um, Michael, I just want to point folks to a um, to a very good resource to actually get started. Um, normal labs right. labs.hol.vmware.com, our hands-on labs.
What is our tip type wrong? Labs today. Oh. Yeah, labs.hol.vmware.com. I missed the VMware. I'm a regular user of this platform. <laughs> yes. And I'm a huge <laughs> fan of it as well because um, not everybody can afford lab gear or licenses for it. So um, a platform like this actually allows you to, to get your hands dirty with new technology um, where a home lab wouldn't meet the wife acceptance factor. Um, if you click on all labs on the left-hand side, or yeah, the cloud native applications one, we actually do have a predefined filter. And especially the 1830 and 1831, um, they were revamped for uh, at VMworld, um, so they should be running um, the latest and greatest, maybe not the uh, VIC 1.2 release just yet. Um, but again, I'm a huge fan of the VMware hands-on labs um, because they allow you to, to tinker and play around with it. You don't have to actually follow the lab manual you you can just branch out and use the environment and uh, for for the needs that you have to familiarize yourself with new technology as well. So they are a great starting point to to actually start to repeat the uh, a similar thing which Michel, uh, Michael did uh, during the live demo today. Good point, Frank. And we do have one question. Oh no, yeah, just a comment. Awesome presentation. <laughs> So I'll ah, happily awesome. relay that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, guys. And I look forward on seeing you next week again for a Kubernetes deep dive. Um, yes. Also, since it comes up with my customers quite often on a regular basis, if you wouldn't mind adding a small, how do I actually monitor my orchestrated containers to that as well? Because I know Kubernetes has some basic functionality there. I think that that would be really interesting for folks. What do you mean by monitoring? So um, logs? Logs as, as well as utilization. To make sure that your environment is actually healthy yeah i can i cannot show wavefront next week i think beyond <laughs> just i could <laughs> that's anyway. right that's fine um, yes I, I can show the um some of the primitives mm -hmm. of kubernetes mon yes yeah just just, just to give folks a few pointers right because once you start deploying it, I think that's a very, very important part of, of the actual operations as well. Yes, just took a note for it. Brilliant. Good. Awesome. Thanks again. And yeah, have a nice day. See you Thank, you guys. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. See you next week. Bye bye.